guests with us that I would like to, to greet you before you leave today. And some folks maybe that I, I don't see all the time that I'd love to, love to greet you as well. So don't run out of here too quick. We often use something in our interactions and kind of, kind of uh, identifying how people operate and think. But we often use things like, um, like, are you a, a glass half empty or glass half full kind of person? Y'all know you've done that. And so all my pessimists, y'all raise your hands, okay? All my pessimists, that's me, to a T. Half empty, that's me. But you know what's funny is I realize in my own life as a Christian, like I'm kind of pessimistic about a lot of things, a lot of things. That's my wife. Really pessimistic about a lot of things. But as a Christian, it's like the Lord causes me to be optimistic. And if I could change my terms at this point to long for the ideal. And I think if you're going to be a Christian operating in this world, you must tie yourself to what will be in the end. The glory that is to be revealed when the Lord Jesus comes again, retrieves his people, and the eternal kingdom is fully set up, fully consummated. If we don't live with that ideal constantly in our minds and in our lives, man, we're, we're going to be a desperate people. We see in our text today those ideals, I believe. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And I would tell you that we need to be ideal, like idealists, that's a proper terminology. We need to be idealists to some degree, but I would say we need to be realistic in our idealism. Somebody like, that's a contradiction. If I could say it this way, maybe we need, to, we need to long for those ideals of the Bible and the kingdom, but we need to be idealistic with a seatbelt. We're, we're looking in a passage today that summarizes a, another season in the life of the church and it expounds on similar wording from chapter 2. You may recall chapter 2, one of my favorite passages, chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's chapter 2, 44 and 45. And now here in chapter 4, 32 through 37, we see this very description explained in further detail, and it ends up setting up the stage for the account of Ananias and Sapphira. So if you know your Bible well enough, you know what's coming. That's going to be our text for next week. So let's read these verses, chapter 4, 32 through 37, here the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who's also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Father, we are delighted to open your word to look into the, the person of Jesus and what he has created in the church. We pray, God, that you would show us this truth so that we can align our lives with the truth of your word, what is intended for us. And we need your Holy Spirit's help to do that. So send him and bless us in these few minutes as we look in the word. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title today is Mikasa Esukasa. I'm not preaching in Spanish today, or ever for that matter, unless the Holy Spirit does something in me. I don't <laughs> always leave that open, all right? Mi casa es su casa. That means my house is your house. And it's not hard to see where I get that from in this text. And it's not hard to read this passage and see how this relates to our lives. So I don't think I need to say anything about that. Let's just dig in. The theme today, at times, the local church exhibits extraordinary generosity to see gospel advance. At times, the local church exhibits extraordinary generosity to see gospel Advance. And I want to bring out just a few things for you today, uh, three to be exact. First off, they're, they're really encouragements. We could say encouragements or, or directions or whatever. First off, number one, we want to aim for unity in ongoing ministry. Aim for unity in ongoing ministry. You see this from verses 32 and 33. You can immediately see from those two verses... Two aspects of church life that are always working together to accomplish the mission. There is the internal life of the church, which touches the church's unity. And then there's the external life of the church, which has to do with that public witness. Or maybe some of us would say that's more mission. I like to think of it kind of all as what the church does participating in mission. But we'll say it this way. It's witness. Out there, it's witness. In here, it's that internal unity. Now, we know this from experience because we've all heard or said something like, well, it's just not a mission-minded church. So they're too inward-focused. Or we've heard it or watched it or participated in it, and we've seen churches split right down the middle. You know, back in the 90s, when churches wouldn't plant churches... I think it was God using their division to actually plant churches. He was like, y'all won't do it. I'm going to make you do it. <laughs> y'all go over there. Do your own thing. But we see this. We see this. Those things are working together. Two aspects of what the church does that accomplishes its ministry. Both of those are right here in verses 32 and 33, respectively. Now, Luke here is esteeming the first church as a pattern of sorts. Let me, let me pause right here. Um, there's going to be a, a, 
a long explanation on this first point. So listen closely, please. He's, he's setting forth a pattern of sorts for all local churches throughout the world that would ever exist. But he's setting forth really an ideal for us to long for, long to see become a reality. But I read this passage, I hope you read this passage with me, and you're like, man, it, it almost seems too good to be true. Like they're selling their homes, they're selling land so that they can give it to one another? It almost seems utopian. It almost seems otherworldly. And now we'll define what this is not in just a few minutes. So right now, I just want you to settle into this ideal. This says they were of one heart. They were of one soul. That word soul is also mind. It's actually the word psyche, where we get the word psyche. One heart. One soul or, or mind, and we're talking about thousands of people, many selling homes and land in order to provide for one another, to look out for one another. And it says they had everything in common. Mikasa esukasa. And we read these passages, and I'm talking about them right now, and maybe even some of you are like, this is uncomfortable. I don't like what that text says. It scares me a little bit. Commentators make a strong case that Luke is portraying Greek ideals as being fulfilled only in the life of the church. So, for instance, Pole Hill writes, he says, The Greeks shared a common myth that in primitive times, people lived in an ideal state in which there was no ownership, but everything was held in common. So, if that's the case, then Luke's account here would immediately make sense to his Gentile readers and hearers that they would see that, that reality. And you all know there's something inside of you that longs to see unity anywhere and everywhere. And that's a good God-given desire. And what Luke is saying to the Gentiles and to us is like, those good God-given desires are going to be realized in God's economy, which is right before you in the, in the life of the church. That's where you're going to see hints of what will be that coming ideal, that coming what will be then a reality. Now their idea paired with the apostles' bold witness. It says that they testified to the resurrection of Jesus with great power because of God's great grace. This was the external business of the church and God granted them that great grace. It was upon them all. The first church's unity bore fruit in generosity, in caring for one another. And the mission continued, as you look in this passage, with power all by God's grace. So suppose there are two applications, or we could, we could make it our aim, because that's the point. First off, we aim for this ideal unity. Ideal unity. Reading the passage, maybe you can identify with this kind of unity, even if we only see it in spurts. I believe the Lord has granted Cedarview Baptist Church a unique season of unity for the past couple of years. And I long to see it continue. It may not always continue. There will be strife. I know that. But I'm asking the Lord to prolong it as long as he is willing to allow that. 
But the fact that we've enjoyed unity does not mean that everything is easy or that we don't maintain differences or have disagreements. So when we read about the one heart and the one soul of this local church, we're not saying that everybody was exactly the same. It means that they, and it means that we must prioritize the bond that we share in Christ more than the things that could divide us. We must continue with what that mentality is, that, that if we want to see that ideal, we got to press forward in unity. When we let our differences or disagreements rise to the same level as that bond in Christ... And I hope you immediately know things in your life that you've tried to do this before. When we see those differences and disagreements rise to that same level, what happens is we start to look past unity and we start to seek uniformity. And hear me, that goes beyond what Scripture calls us to. This passage is not about making everyone think exactly the same. It's not about making everyone act exactly the same. We are not clones. They are not clones. We are not robots. The fact is that some of you share different theological positions than I do. And that's possible in the local church. Some of you have different daily practices from one another. Some of you have different end times views than one another. You have various interpretations within Scripture and numerous, numerous convictions that reach into all the spheres of our lives. We are different, and still in that difference, God grants unity. That's exactly what he was doing in the local church in Acts chapter 4. I'll give you an example of someone who promoted that kind of unity Rupertus Meldinius. He was a German theologian who lived and ministered during the time of the Thirty Years' War in Europe. One of the bloodiest, longest, and most destructive events in the history of Europe. And at the center of the conflict was religious tension. And it was in those bloody years that Meldinius pinned a tract on Christian unity. And here's what he said. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Historian Philip Schaff calls this saying the watchword of Christian peacemakers. So we long for unity. We pray for unity in the local church and we pray for unity in the kingdom of Christ along with Jesus' prayer. John 17, God, make it to be true. But may we not misunderstand what this means. So let me ask you a question. In seeking unity, are we prioritizing the right things? What expectations do you place on other church members? Does it reflect a biblical pattern? Are your expectations beyond those of Scripture? Ideal unity. We long for this. We want this. We aim for this kind of unity. And very briefly, I'll just mention 
powerful witness. Ideal unity, and we aim for powerful witness. This is kind of selflessness in the local church that backed up the proclamation of the gospel. These people claim to follow Jesus. They spoke of Jesus boldly. And then when we look in their life together, it all lines up. So that the gospel, when it was preached, and when the apostles were ministering, they could look at the community and say, hey, these people are the real deal. It led to that powerful witness. So let us, first off, aim for unity and ongoing ministry, second encouragement or directive today. Enjoy provision through selfless sacrifice. You see this in verses 34 and 35. Again, this is the ideal. And this ideal really is rooted in Old Testament language. Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, and the whole passage tells us this. But listen, this is what God said when you go into that land. Basically, there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. So God said, in that land, there will be no poor among you. And we see that in the text. There wasn't anybody who had a need among the saints of God. But then you also remember what Jesus had to say about the poor, don't you? What does he say? You will always have the poor among you. So are are they contradicting one another? What's going on here? What's the difference? Here's the difference. In the world, there's always the poor. There's always the widow. There's always the orphan. There's always the sojourner. But in the church, which is the outpost of Christ's kingdom, there is not a needy person among them. I hope in some sense you have become attracted to the local church because you were some kind of needy person and then you came among the saints of God and you learned that in God's people God has granted me with everything I need the best kind of community unlike any other and if we're doing things right and if we're trusting the Holy Spirit then I hope I hope you can walk away from the life of the church and you can say Man, another Sunday where I realize that I have no need when I'm with these people. Now, we ought to root this at this point in the truth of the gospel because this is all about the gospel. Why would it be easy for people who believe in Jesus to sacrifice their homes and their lands for one another because Jesus sacrificed his life? It's that simple. It's that simple. You start to hold your possessions a little looser once you come to know Jesus, don't you? It really serves as a taste of what is to come in the new creation. We're an outpost of Christ's kingdom. So all the sacrifices made here and now point forward to the time when this ideal becomes that perfect reality. 
and all the sacrifices that are made here and now for the good of one another will be remembered and celebrated in our eternal day of rest. These people were going all out. They were going all out. Homes on the market. Lands on the market. Extraordinary generosity because they were awaiting the city that is to come. You know what that city is? It's that new Jerusalem. That new Jerusalem that that John saw, one of my favorite passages, that John saw descending on the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. He said, what was it? Adorned like a bride. Who is that? Who is that? That's the church. The new Jerusalem will descend upon that new earth and be the habitation of the people of God under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. I should have made just provisions right there to start preaching a little bit. You know what I mean? Oh, my goodness. But I want to get to what we have right here in this text. I want to help you understand what, what this is not. Okay, you look at it and you're like, all right, man, you're going to tell me to sell my house or sell my farm or whatever. Give it to the church or come lay it at the church's feet and y'all do what you want with it. Oh, is that what you're doing, Matt? Now, listen, I want to tell you what this is not. Do not join with the errant commentators and practitioners who would suggest that this is a specific requirement upon local churches everywhere. Okay. Here's one way you can know this is not the case because you don't see this repeated throughout the rest of the New Testament. In fact, you see rich people with a lot of possessions as we just covered in Ephesus. And Timothy is instructed to help them see, hey, you've got all this stuff. Be generous with people. It's that Holy Spirit directed generosity. We're not placing a rule over the church. And I would suggest that every community that has attempted to replicate what we have right here, every community that, that has tried to replicate that exactly ends up going off the rails in a far more critical point in the life of the church. So here's, here's briefly how it happens. Somebody reads the Bible right here, and then they get just so hung up on this one thing. And then they make it their life's goal to do church like this. And they end up going off the rails. I've seen it. I've been close to going off the rails myself, but the Lord helped. The Spirit corrected and used the saints of God to do that. So we don't want to lay a rule or requirement over the church. That's not what it's saying. Furthermore... This is not an argument for socialism. I thought for sure I was going to hear somebody say, America. (laughs) This is not an argument for socialism. 
or it's not the Bible promoting some kind of social theory, whether inside the church or outside the church in larger society, to argue that is an outright abuse of Scripture. I want to remind you, this is not a prescriptive text. Remember those words? But it is a descriptive text that allows us to see what the Holy Spirit might do among a people sold out for the advance of the gospel. Sometimes following Jesus and trusting the Holy Spirit makes you do things that are not necessarily normal. And if we never see those things, then we might need to be concerned. Still more, this is not a passage that we can weaponize in trying to get people to be generous. We can't sell our home for the mission and then demand everyone else do it. That would be going beyond unity, again, to uniformity. Even the language doesn't allow for these misinterpretations. Paul Hill says here, he says, in describing this, Luke uses language that, that is, is kind of like this. This is how they used to do it. They would sell their property and bring it to the apostles as needs arose. So you start to get the sense of the passage. And here's the critical point, which I stated in the theme, based on this passage, there are appropriate times when the Holy Spirit leads us to be extraordinarily generous. And that translates into greater gospel progress. It's just, it just happens. There are some things here, though, that help us. We want to see our generosity as a manifestation of voluntary sacrifice. If you ever feel like you're being compelled or under compulsion to give or to do or to whatever, it's not what I intend. I want you to see the Word of God and on these areas that are, uh, they need more discernment I want to lead you in discerning that thing. We know that the Christian life requires sacrifice. We know the Christian life is going to have persecutions and afflictions and all these kinds of things. Now, navigating that is a different issue. This is voluntary sacrifice. We can know from the text that personal possessions are assumed. In fact, it says, no one said that any of the things that belong to him because they belong to him was his own. Personal possessions are assumed, but there is generous mutual care. Their sincere concern is for one another in the church and the advance of the gospel through the church. And so the Holy Spirit led them to volunteer what they have for the good of others. It's that simple. But I think that in this, we can see some biblical tensions. And I've got them on the screen for you. It's voluntary sacrifice, but we're having to wrestle through some biblical tensions. And this may get a, a little beyond like normal preaching talk, but I hope it helps. Biblical tensions. I think we have a biblical tension between stewardship and generosity. You understand what I mean? When you have things that you're responsible for. For instance, I got kids. 
And so I got to be a good steward of what I have. And it means that I can't go so far as to give all my possessions away because I got them. (laughs) And that makes plenty of sense, I hope, in your own mind. But we also have to deal with the, the biblical reality and the expectation of generosity. So somewhere in the middle there, you learn to ease that tension by understanding sacrifice. I can be a good steward and I can be generous through sacrifice. That's where we start to understand that all that we have, we must hold with that loose grip. So that when the Holy Spirit decides to lead you to make a sacrifice, it is a willing sacrifice. Again, it requires discernment to know when a sacrifice is necessary, a sacrifice that may be made for the good of one another. So we have stewardship and generosity. We ease that tension through sacrifice. We also, another tension I think we see in this text, is a tension between diligence and dependence. Diligence, or you could say uh, God-honoring work ethic and dependence. This is where I think many of us are going to fall off on one side or the other. The tension is eased between these two when we see how God designed the interdependence of the life of the local church. Here's here's maybe some, some ways or maybe some ways that it would work out if you fall off one side or the other. If you're that diligent one and you read the Proverbs, you work hard and you make your paycheck or whatever it is. But if if that work ethic, if that so-called independence makes you prideful and sinful in independence, you've missed it. Here's how it happens. And you notice this in subtle ways. Uh, I hear so many of you say things like, well, I know you were busy, so I didn't want to bother you. Like, that's your pride. It's my job. Like, you bother me. That's, that's my job, right? At least in some sense, in a good way. It's your pride when you say, no, nah, I won't ask them for help. I don't want to look a certain way. I don't want to come across a certain way. You see what's happening there? You're falling off on the side of diligence and hard work. I refuse to be dependent on these people. That's not God honoring. God put these people here to help you. I think I could say that in so many better words, but I'm just not right now. On the other side, though, you may fall off on dependence. Your dependence on others leads you to be a freeloader. The local church in this chapter right here is is exhibiting this perfect willingness. It's not free from common sense. They know they got responsibility. They are operating according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And they're dealing with these tensions just right for that moment. And I think coming back to the main point, that's when we begin to see local church, we get to enjoy the provision that God 
gives us in one another. But what's, what's, I think, a shame in our society, many Christians can pick up the local church and drop the local church, and it means nothing for their life. I want to confess to you, like, if the Lord stripped the local church from me, I would be shattered. I would be destroyed. Because he uses the local church as a conduit, an avenue of his grace in my life in immeasurable kind of ways. So, roughly, application here, if you say, man, the local church has nothing to do with my life, when it's all said and done, I can show up, I can leave, I can not come for five years, it doesn't matter. There's a major problem. If you confess Jesus is your Lord, God designed interdependence in the church just like he designed interdependence in your own body. So many illustrations that could go there. We're going we're gonna to conclude, though. Aim for unity and ongoing ministry. Enjoy provision through selfless sacrifice. Somebody makes a sacrifice for you, say, God be praised. God be praised. Receive it. And if you need it, ask for it. Get over your pride. I think thirdly, and very briefly, because this kind of leads into the next text, we could say model gospel-fueled generosity. Model gospel-fueled generosity. We immediately see this comparison being made between uh, Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, I was reading in a commentary as, as I was preparing this week, and the writer said, Luke has a way of sort of subtly introducing characters that are going to become major characters. We know Barnabas was a key missionary, somebody who carried the gospel throughout the book of Acts, throughout the known world. That's what he does here. So I think that we could say from this, application-wise, his example, cultivate generosity now. His mentality was one that God was willing to use down the road. He was willing to sell what he had. He sold a field that belonged to him, and God used that to bless the people of God, and then he used Barnabas as a missionary. Maybe there's some of y'all that, that you have had a thought about, is God calling me to mission work? Is God calling me to ministry. I was lamenting with some brothers this week. Um, I'm looking at younger generations. Looking at younger generations. I'm 39. Okay, some of you are wondering, how, how old are you? See all this gray? That's gray. I'm 39, and I'm looking at younger generations, and I'm asking the question, where are the pastors Where are the pastors? Where are the missionaries? 
I, I don't have an answer to that question. But I see more and more young men getting theological training and then they're going to work in the world. I'm like, we need you in the local church. We need you. Maybe our prayer should be, God, raise up pastors, missionaries. It's almost like Jesus told us to pray for that. For laborers in the field. But here we see this act of generosity on behalf of Barnabas was sort of a a key thought in the mind of Luke to include it right here and show us that this is the guy who became a missionary. Cultivate generosity now, and I'll say it this way, celebrate blessings later. I feel like I always in our culture have to qualify the word blessings because blessings uh, can be a lot of different things that we would consider positive and negative. His ministry is proof, is what I'm saying. God used him in miraculous ways as the gospel went forward and he was a pillar in Christian mission. And I'm going to leave the explanation, further explanation of who Barnabas was for next week. But for now, I'll just tell you a little story about a friend of mine who had to wrestle with generosity, had to wrestle with, with wealth. A good friend of mine, a uh, long time ago as he got started in his career, he got into finance and all that kind of stuff, and he, he had determined that he was going to have a million dollars saved by whatever age it was. You know what he did? Every morning he would wake up in the bed and he would turn to his, his closet door, and on his closet door he would have the list of all the things that he had to do to make that million dollars. And he would go in his bathroom, and on his bathroom mirror was that same list, all the things that he had to do to make this million dollars. In every way he could, he was reminding himself of the goal so that he could reach that goal and save all that money. And it was all about his own wealth. It was all about his own success. And you know what God did? God made him broke. And he said, well, that's not good. He would tell you that was the best thing that God could have done. He made him broke in order to get him to see that his wealth is not his. What he has is not his own. The, the short end of the story is that this man has become probably the most generous person that I have ever met. God has blessed him with immense wealth, immense wealth, and he gives it away. He gives it away like candy. And only somebody who understands the provision of God, ultimately in the sacrifice of Jesus, is going to be generous like that. You know, it hurts to say it, but it's true. I know that God is never going to make me rich because there's no way I'll ever be that generous. I mean, that's the truth. He's never going to give me that much money because I, man, it, it's, it's, it's a sincere confession. I wonder if many of you wrestle with that very same thing Maybe we could wrestle with that as we respond to the word of God. 
I want you to be generous, folks, led by the Holy Spirit, voluntary in your generosity. Why? Because we know the Lord Jesus who gave himself on a tree for us, laid down his life, endured the wrath of the Father that we deserved, infinite wrath, infinite affliction upon himself as he breathed his last. If we're gospel people, then we ought to be generous people. Be generous, folks. Be generous with one another. Love one another. Support one another. Ask one another for that support. Let's respond. Whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you to, I'll pray with you. Confess sin. Confess those areas of your heart where, just like I did, like I'm not there. I need help, Lord. Father, we're 